be worshiping our good God together. Now, I want to start this sermon in a way that there's a slight chance might put some of you guys to sleep unless you just happen to be like kind of like a history buff. If you if you enjoy church history specifically, then you then you'll love the way that I begin this particular sermon. If not, then just try to stick with me. Try to keep that guy right there, the one who was singing, awake, and uh, we will we will see how it goes. All right. So at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, I'm already captivating you guys. I know. But at the beginning of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, when the, the reformers were breaking away from the church in Rome, one of the key figures, some would say even the most important figure of this Reformation, was the man named Martin Luther. Martin Luther. Now, now Martin Luther was a, was a very fiery figure. He was very fiery. He did not mince his words he did not hold anything back whatsoever. He said exactly what he thought on pretty much every single issue, on pretty much anything and everything. And when speaking of the Pope, specifically, he, he said this. He said, the Pope is a mere tormentor of conscience. The assembly of his greased and religious crew in praying was altogether like the croaking of frogs, which edified nothing at all. Whew. Man. Also, he says this. After the devil himself, there is no worse folk than the Pope and his followers. So, he did not mince his words. He said exactly what he thought. He said exactly what was on his mind. But it's also important to know that, that Luther wasn't always that brazen. He wasn't always that unafraid in his speech. In fact, at the very dawn of the Reformation... Luther was brought to stand trial for his writings that outlined the lack of biblical evidence for many of the teachings that were coming out of the Roman Catholic Church. And at this trial that was called the Diet of Worms, which not diet meaning, you know, like a, like, you know, a, a food diet. Diet is just a fancy term for an assembly. And worms isn't, uh, you know, the actual little squiggly things that we're thinking of. It's actually pronounced Worms, which is a town in Germany. So at this assembly in the city called Worms, Martin Luther was called to recant his writings, to turn against them, to say that they were, they were bad and evil and he was sorry for writing them. And out of understandable fear of what would happen if he didn't recant, he was asked for one day to deliberate his response. It wasn't so fiery right there. But on the next day, when he went again before the tribunal, Martin Luther was actually given the courage from the Holy Spirit to say this. And, and try to stick with me here. He says, unless I am convinced by Scripture... In plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience, listen, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. So for Martin Luther, the Word of God, and the Word of God alone was the only authority that could bind and hold his conscience. Nothing else. It was the Word of God that stood above any other sort of authority. 
above the Pope, above the conclusions of the various Roman Catholic councils, above the bishops, above any word of man. And this is the core, this is the essence of what our passage is about this morning. The sufficiency and the supremacy of, the, of God's word above anything else, especially the words of man. But first, let us seek the leading of the Holy Spirit this morning in prayer. Lord God, we thank you so much, Lord, that you have given us your word. God, you have revealed yourself to us in a way that is so magnificent and so wonderful. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you open the eyes of our hearts this morning to the truths that are found within it. And Lord, we love you. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so if you have been with us over the, over the last you know, few weeks, you may have noticed that we've actually skipped ahead a little bit in Mark. And we are now beginning our time today in chapter 7. Now, I do encourage you to go back and read through verses 45 and 56 of chapter 6. But for the sake of time, I've decided to kind of leapfrog us a little bit and bring us to the opening 13 verses of chapter 7. Now, to just kind of set the stage a little bit, at the end of chapter 6, we see that Jesus has been traveling through the region of the Genesaret, which was a town in the northwestern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And Genesaret had several kind of other little towns and villages surrounding it. And Jesus had been visiting them, and he had been healing the sick, and, and more than likely, as it is Jesus' M.O., teaching. And so he has been going through this area. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, at this point in Jesus' ministry, he and his apostles have kind of risen to this minor celebrity status. The word of Jesus' teaching and miracles had been spread far and wide by now. And whenever Jesus would enter into a town, it was, it was not uncommon for him to just kind of be just swarmed by these crowds of people. And that's, that's essentially what was happening in this area in and around Genesaret. However, it wasn't just the common folk that were curious about Jesus. If you remember from chapters 2 and 3, Jesus had also caught the attention of the religious elites of the day, the Pharisees and scribes. Now, the role of the Pharisees and the scribes was, was first and foremost to point Israel, to point the Jewish people to God. That was essentially their job description. That was, that was their reason for existence. And the scribes were known to make meticulous copies of Scripture as well as teach the Scripture. And the Pharisees were a sect within the Jewish people who were, who were very concerned with the law of God and being holy and following His law as closely as possible. And they too were known to be teachers. However, by the time Jesus came onto the world's stage, the Pharisees and the scribes had, had largely abandoned their role as teachers. And instead, they began to concern themselves with gaining and, and keeping a certain amount of notoriety and power within the Jewish society. And so when they looked at Jesus and they saw what he was doing, they didn't, they didn't see just another normal teacher. They saw a threat. 
they saw a threat, and not just a threat to the people of Israel. That would be kind of understandable. You know, they, it would be understandable if they were concerned that this man was coming in here and teaching false things. But that's, that wasn't really the, the, on the top of the list of priorities for these people. Their concern, instead, was that he was a threat to their power. And so as people began to flock to Jesus, the Pharisees and scribes were filled with jealousy. They're filled with jealousy, a type of jealousy that if left unrepented of, quickly turns the heart contemptuous and murderous and full of hate. And you see that murderous and hateful heart really begin to to blossom in these religious elites in chapter 3. When after one particular run-in with Jesus, they begin to, to actually plot how they can destroy Jesus. And so that's what's, that's what's going on in the hearts of these Pharisees and scribes here in chapter 7. It's important to know that. That's what they're feeling. It's what's going on in their minds. And as the fame of Jesus grew, the hatred the Pharisees and scribes had for Jesus also grew at an equal rate. And so they kept their eyes sharp for anything that might discredit Jesus. And here in our passage today, hey, they thought they they found something. They thought they found it. The one thing that was going to trap Jesus. They they got it. So if you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Mark chapter 7. Let's just take a look at the first two verses. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's totally fine. We've got it right up here on the screen for you guys. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. They saw that Jesus' disciples did not wash their hands. And now, just a quick aside, but can you, can you see, and we're not going to stay here long, but can you see how jealousy and contempt over someone causes you to to obsess over them to the detriment of of yourself you can become so focused on the other person and just think of how how long and how closely the pharisees and scribes had to sit there and just watch the disciples every single move in order to catch them to not not washing their hands of all things what an incredible waste of time Now, this washing of hands thing may not seem like like a big deal to us, right? It doesn't really seem like this big gotcha moment. Why would the disciples not washing their hands be be this this big momentous thing for the religious leaders to to want to point out? And, And to be fair, even if you're slightly concerned with germs, you may be thinking to yourself, yeah, you know what, I might be with the Pharisees and the scribes on this one, because that's a little gross. But you see, as 21st century Christians... And and being centuries removed from the time of Christ walking on earth, it can sometimes be difficult to see what is going on in situations like this. And so we're we're, we're kind of left wondering what the big deal is, right? But thankfully, if you remember, Mark is actually writing this gospel to Christians who are most likely in Rome, most of whom would have been Gentiles or non-Jewish people. 
And like you and I, they also wouldn't have understood the significance of the disciples not washing their hands. They wouldn't, they wouldn't understand what's going on. And so knowing this, Mark explains the situation in verses 3 and 4. Mark says, explaining the situation, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they are many, there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, I want to share with you again a, a slide that we actually looked at uh, several months ago. And I think we have it here. We have the little slide that's after the verses. There we go. So you see, the Jewish people were called to follow the commandments of God that were given to them in the first five books of the Bible. And these first five books were called the Torah, the Torah, which literally means the law. And these laws given in the Torah were breathed out by God himself. They were given by God himself. They were his very word and his law to his people. They were Israel's instruction manual, if you will, for, for godly living. And the most famous of these laws are what we all know as the Ten Commandments. And this is what's represented right here. This is the law of God. However, over the centuries, various teachers and rabbis began to create additional laws for the Jewish people to follow. And the collection of these additional laws is what is called the Mishnah. And that's represented by this yellow line around the law of God. It's called the Mishnah. Now, the original intent of these new laws, of the Mishnah, was, was somewhat admirable, if not sinfully misguided. You see, they were created as a protective fence around the Torah. They were meant to, meant to surround the Torah as a protective fence barrier, as if the law of God needed protecting. But in the minds of the religious leaders, if you weren't breaking the Mishnah, if you weren't breaking the Mishnah, then there would be no possible way that you could be breaking the Torah, right? So it was meant to guard the law of God so that you for sure did not break God's word. And so it had this somewhat admirable reason behind it. And so when we look at our passage today in Mark 7, the washing of the hands, along with the washing of the cups and pots and vessels and the use of dining couches, Mark mentions in verse 4, were all man-made traditions, and they were part of what? The Mishnah. They were part of the Mishnah. And at this point in redemptive history, to the Pharisees and scribes, to break a law in the Mishnah was tantamount to breaking a law in the Torah. The Mishnah had risen in authority to the level of Scripture to the people in this day and age, especially the Pharisees and the scribes. And so the Pharisees and scribes, they, they bustle over to Jesus, and uh, in verse 5 they ask him, why do, you, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? But they eat with defiled hands, with unclean, unwashed hands. Why, Jesus, if you claim to be a teacher who knows a thing or two about the Jewish law, why are you not having your followers keep 
the Mishnah. That's not very teacherly of you now, is it? And now look, your, your disciples are now all defiled. They're all unclean. Good job, Jesus. It's essentially what they're saying to him here. Now, have you ever said something to someone and you essentially immediately regret it afterwards? So I've done that a lot. I'm married, so I've done that a lot. But I remember one specific moment, not with my wife, but when I was 9 or 10, I was trying to rat out my sister for uh, not mopping the kitchen floor. And uh, I, I, man, I instantly regretted it because I didn't know this at the time, but my uh, sister used to keep this mental filing cabinet in her mind of all of the different chores that I forgot to do. And uh, when I tried to rat her out to my mom, she just opened up that drawer and let it loose. It was, it was a massacre. But I believe that the Pharisees and scribes, they, they probably felt that exact same way when Jesus started uh, starting to respond in verse 6. And he began his reply by saying this, in verses 6 through 8, he says, And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God, and you hold on to the tradition of men. So Jesus' response is harsh, and it is brutal. Jesus is calling out these religious leaders as hypocrites. Now, just real fast, what, what is a hypocrite? What is a hypocrite? And that is a, a word that we all essentially know what it means, but, but do you know where it actually comes from? Well, it actually comes from a Greek word used for someone that, that uses a mask and play acts. Meaning someone who would go on stage put on a mask, and pretend to be someone they aren't. And the mask that they would put on served actually two functions. It would, it would be uh, used to project an image that the person would want the rest of the world to see, and then it would also hide their true selves underneath. Those serve two functions there. And so Jesus is saying that, that this precisely describes these religious leaders to a T. Quoting from the prophet Isaiah, Jesus is telling the Pharisees and scribes that you, you walk around here play-acting, projecting to the world that you love God. You, you pray on street corners. You worship loudly in the synagogues. You boast about your godliness. But all of that is simply a mask, hiding a heart underneath that is far from God. And friends, this should, this should serve as a warning for us, right? Because it is possible to pay lip service to God every day. It's possible to come to church every Sunday and be the loudest singer during worship. Say amens all throughout the sermon and yet be a hypocrite. All of those things... All of those deeds, all those outwardly signs can at times turn into simply a mask, hiding a heart that is far from God. Because as we will see, 
Being a believer in Jesus is more than just checking off items on a list of religious duties. So what exactly, what, what exactly are these religious leaders doing that Jesus finds so hypocritical? Why is it that Jesus says that these Pharisees are singing the praises of God with their lips, but that there is nothing in their hearts? What's going on? Well, Jesus has something particular in mind that he sees as the root of their hypocrisy. Look again at verse 7. In vain do they worship me. Why? Teaching as doctrine the commandments of of men. And Jesus reiterates in verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And so friends, it all, it all comes down to doctrine. It all comes down to doctrine. And what is doctrine? Well, there's a lot of people in our culture, when they hear that word doctrine, they typically think of cold, dead, boring list of rules that they have to follow. For some, it's just this, this dusty, old, and archaic word that really has no place in Christianity. And this view of doctrine has, has really crammed its way into the church, making people really kind of hate that word. And so there's this cry from a certain group of Christians who will say, hey, you know what? No doctrine for me but Jesus. No doctrine for me but Jesus. And that, that, that sounds good to our ears, right? That, that sounds almost just right. It sounds good. It sounds like you are just stripping everything else away other than Jesus Christ. But friends, I, I pray that you hear me with grace here. I pray that you hear me with grace. Because in reality, that cry is dangerous and it is naive. It is dangerous and it is naive. You see, all doctrine means is teaching. All it means is teaching that comes from Scripture. That's it. That's, that's all it means. And in the context of scriptural doctrine, friends, doctrine is the life of the church. It's the life of the church because how can you have no doctrine but Jesus if you don't have the doctrinal teaching about Jesus that comes from where? The Bible. How can you praise God for saving you from your sin through faith alone by God's grace alone if you don't know what the Bible teaches about those things? How can you say that you know God? How can you say that you have a relationship with God without the doctrines, without the teachings that God gives you about Himself in His Word? The answer to that is that you can't. You can't. Because you see, brothers and sisters, true doctrine, doctrine that Jesus loves, that tells you about Himself and who He, he truly is, does not come from human minds or imaginations. True doctrine does not come from, from how you feel like God should be. True, true doctrine flows from the very being of God, and it is graciously given to us in His Word. You see, that, 
That kind of doctrine creates in us, as J.C. Ryle says, a heart religion. A heart religion that ignites our desires. That ignites our passions to love and serve Jesus in a way that's not just showing lip service to Him. In a way that is not simply just a mask meant to project to the world how much holier than thou we are. But in a way that testifies to His greatness, His mercy, His love, and His glory. And so, brothers and sisters, true doctrine is not cold and distant. That's, that's false doctrine. That's, that's doctrine that comes from man. But true doctrine, because it comes from our living God, is alive. It's alive and it draws us near to Him. And so, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us love the teaching of God. Let us yearn for it. Let us, let us hunger for it. Let us open our Bibles and beg God, as Paul does for the Christians in Ephesus in Ephesians 1, to open the eyes of our hearts so that we can learn more of Him. And friends, if you, if you dismiss God's doctrine, if you leave it, you need to know that something will fill that void. Some doctrine of man some teaching, some, some worldly philosophy will fill that space in your heart. That is exactly what happened with the Pharisees and scribes. Jesus said to them that you left the doctrines of God. You left my commandments. And what came to take its place? The commandments, the traditions of man. And the result of that were hearts far from God, cold and distant. It is interesting that the very wall that they erected to protect the Torah now walled them off from the very God who wrote it. Jesus continues his reply to the Pharisees and scribes, who I'm sure at this point wish they had just stayed home that day. But he continues his reply in verses 9 through 12. And he said to them, you have a fine way, I love how he puts that, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But, but you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever Sorry, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. And so here, don't miss it, here Jesus is attacking the very root of the problem of the Mishnah. You see, in trying to protect the Torah, the word of God, by adding to it, by adding to it, they were actually saying something very specific and very loudly. By adding on to the Word of God, these religious leaders were saying that God's Word isn't sufficient. That God's Word isn't sufficient. They were saying that God's Word was not sufficient for godly living of Israel. They were saying that God's Word wasn't enough to protect Israel, to keep them from ungodliness. 
Again, they were, they were saying that God's word was not enough to teach the Jewish people how to live a God-honoring life. And so therefore, man had to come along and help God out. Man had to come in with better ways to be godly. As ridiculous as that sounds. And so while they claim to be worshiping God by, by legalistically following these commands of men, what Jesus is pointing out is that in reality, they weren't worshiping God. They weren't worshiping God at all. They were worshiping man. They were worshiping themselves. Jesus tells them, Moses said to honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles their father and mother must surely die. But, but you... But you, O oh man, say that that is not good enough. And you add to my word. Again, J.C. Ryle says that you can destroy the authority of God with addition just as easily as you can with subtraction. Meaning that when you add anything to God's word, when you add any rules or regulations that are not there, you are supplanting God's authority with your own. That was the root of the Pharisees' inscribed hypocrisy. Now, I want us to remember that before we view ourselves as better than the Pharisees and as better than the scribes, as at a, a higher plane of, of godliness than the Pharisees and the scribes, we need to be sure that we are examining our own hearts and minds. Because more often than not, when we read Scripture, we, we identify not with, with Jesus, though that should always be our aim. But when we read Scripture, we more often than not identify more closely with who? The villains of the story, right? More often than not, we identify with the failings of David with the pride of King Saul, with the fear of Peter, with the timidity of Timothy, and with the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And there are so many examples of human beings identifying with leaving the Word of God in favor for the traditions of men. There's, there are so many examples of that. Let's just take a look at three common examples. The first I want to look at is, is just numbing legalism. Numbing legalism. Essentially, legalism involves taking the law of God out of its original context and in many cases adding on to it like the Pharisees and the scribes. And some people seem to be preoccupied in the Christian life with obeying these rules and regulations and they conceive, they create this Christianity as being a series of do's and don'ts. A, a cold and deadly set of moral principles and nothing more. And as I said, we, we sometimes add our own principles on top of that, such as no tattoos or no drinking. And I don't mean getting drunk, which is a sin, but I mean drinking as a whole. Or, or having to wear this or that at church. Or, or playing uh, a certain style of music at church. Or, or various other rules that we add onto the commandments of Jesus, but are not found anywhere in Scripture. Or if it is, it's taken completely out of context. That is legalism. Where one is concerned merely with the keeping of God's law and their own, as an end in itself. No higher purpose. 
Now, God certainly cares about our following His commandments. Please don't hear me saying that, that He doesn't. Yet there is more to the story that we dare not forget. God gave laws such as the Ten Commandments in, in the context of a covenant. First, God was gracious. He redeemed His people out of slavery in Egypt, and He entered into a loving relationship with Israel. Only after that grace-based relationship was established did God begin to define the specific laws that are pleasing to Him. But the legalist isolates the law from the God who gave the law and typically seeks to add their own man-made traditions to it. He is not so much attempting to obey God or honor Christ as he is to obey rules that are devoid of any personal relationship whatsoever. There's no love, no joy, no life, no passion. It's a rote, mechanical form of law-keeping. The legalist focuses only on obeying bare rules, destroying the broader context of God's love and redemption in which He gave His law in the first place. And that includes so many who are in the church today who see salvation coming from law-keeping. Not from Jesus Christ. Not from grace. Not from, not from faith. Law-keeping. The second example of supplanting God's words with the words and traditions of man is what I, what I like to call bumper sticker Christianity. Bumper sticker Christianity. And this is what the no doctrine but Jesus crowd would fall under. There are many in the church who would do away with doctrines of Scripture in favor of watered down, shallow, bumper sticker sayings. Another instance of this would be, and you probably heard this one a lot, is God is love. God is love. Now that, that is true. That's, that's completely true. God is love. But when people say that God is love, do they really mean God's holy love as defined in Scripture? God's love that says to His children that I want the best for you, so repent, repent of your sinful lifestyle and follow me? Or do you think that they mean the all-affirming love as defined by man? These bumper sticker Christians reject the hard teachings of Scripture. They reject the Jesus as found in the Bible. The true Jesus. The Jesus that said in John 14, 6 that He is the only way to the Father. That salvation is only in His name. Or the Jesus that said in Matthew 25, 31-46 that there is coming a day that He Himself, that Jesus, will separate the believers and the unbelievers and that the unbelievers will be sent to eternal punishment and believers will receive eternal life. Of the Jesus that says in Matthew 16, 24 that in order to be His disciple, you must what? Pick up your cross an instrument of torture and death to follow Him. And they supplant those teachings. They supplant them with their own man-made doctrines that while maybe they, maybe they fit and look good on a bumper sticker, are in reality creating hearts that are distant from God. Now lastly, 
And again, hear me with grace here. This is an unpopular opinion in some areas. Lastly is Roman Catholicism. As I said at the beginning of this sermon, one of the core issues of the Reformation was the issue on authority. And for Roman Catholicism, they do not just have one source of spiritual truth, but three. The first is Scripture, with which we would agree. But then they add on what is called tradition, with a capital T, which is these, these extra-biblical teachings that were supposedly handed down through the centuries, but these teachings are nowhere to be found in Scripture. Nowhere. And their third source of authority is what is called the magisterium, which is the collected teachings of the Pope and the bishops from around the world. What they agree on in terms of doctrine is to be considered equal in authority to Scripture. From tradition in the magisterium come doctrines that do not find their source in God, but find their source in man. Doctrines such as the ascension of Mary into heaven and her perpetual virginity. The doctrine that Mary is the dispenser of God's grace, that he, that he filters His grace through Mary, who then dispenses it to us. Or having to confess your sins to a priest and having to do a list of works in order to be forgiven and regain Christ's righteousness. Essentially, having to work for your salvation. Or the re-sacrificing of Jesus during Mass. Because once wasn't enough. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commands of men. And in verse 13, Jesus tells us the natural consequence of attempting to add or sub supplement God's Word. He says, thus making void, thus making void the Word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. In the Pharisees and scribes' pursuit of supplementing God's Word, they voided it. They voided it. Now this doesn't mean that the reality of God's Word is no longer present or that it is no longer applied to the scribes and the Pharisees, but rather they voided the Word of God in their own hearts. They, they voided the spiritual benefits that flow from it. And friends, the same is true for, for you and I. Christians, when we say that the Word of God is not enough for living a godly life, or when we try to add to it our own self-made laws and traditions and doctrines, we void the benefits of God's Word in our hearts. And, and, and friends, when we do that, the rivers of spiritual life that we once enjoyed, they begin to dry up. We begin to feel empty. We begin to feel distant from God. We begin to, to lose that, that freedom that we, that we once felt upon our first conversion, upon our conversion. And so believers, this is a call for you. This is a call for you to examine your own life. Have you been worshiping Jesus with your lips, but in your own hearts been following your own idea of what a godly life looks like? Instead of pursuing a living relationship with Jesus, have you been more concerned with following a cold and dead list of do's and don'ts 
And have you been judging other Christians by your own graceless standards instead of lovingly and graciously seeking to hold them accountable to God's work? And if so, brothers and sisters, this is a call for you to return to the source of the good fruit of the gospel, where there is freedom, where there is is grace and truth and life-giving doctrine. This is a call for us to say along with Martin Luther that our consciences are held captive not by the traditions of man, not by, by the doctrines of man, but by the very word of God alone. Let us pray. Father God, I pray if there is anyone in this room, God, including myself, that has been caught up in following anything, Lord, that is not from your word, any doctrines of man, any legalistic pursuit of of following to a T, a list of do's and don'ts. Lord, I pray that you, you bring those things to the surface, Lord, and through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, help us repent of those things. Father, we love you. And God, we recognize that the only way that we can truly know you is in your word, is through your word. And so God, I pray that you give us a passion, that you give us a heart to want to learn more about you. God, there are so many churches in this country right now that are just dead, that are cold, that have no passion. God, I pray that that is not so here in Redeemer Church, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you, Lord, set all of our hearts on fire for you. God, help us, as J.C. Ryle says, have a true heart religion that seeks to, to know what you have to say. Father, we love you. We pray these things in your Son's holy and precious name.